Welcome to the VFX Show. I'm Mike Seymour, and we are going, well, I was going to say we're going to go west. It's sort of kind of going west uh, a long time ago into a Star Wars world of the Mandalorian. And joining me in his uh, X-Wing fighter is Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? Uh, I'm great. Glad to be here. And from the Death Star, that is uh, Diamond Bros. Uh, Jason Diamond, how are you? Uh, I am great. I have spoken. So, so <laughs> let's establish, first of all, our Star Wars uh, position. Where are we in the uh, kind of fandom of I love the originals and hate the new ones or I love the new ones that I can't see everyone's so upset about. Um, so, Jason, where do you sit? Like, where, where are you going to the Mandalorian? Are you like, are you feel like you've been betrayed by your childhood or are you still all in? Uh, no, I, I mean, I, it's been my childhood dream to see more of the universe, you know, on screen. Uh, so... Uh, I wasn't a fan of the prequels. I like episodes seven and eight, eight more than seven. Excited for nine, uh, but also wait, wait, excited. So you like eight more than nine? You like eight more than seven? I like the Last Jedi more than the other. The, I mean, I don't. I I liked the Force Awakens, but it was um, it was a softball. Didn't challenge okay. anything. But I'm just excited for this sort of expansion. So you're, you're okay stuff. with Leia sort of suddenly? Moving yeah, we already talked about story. all this. We already talked about it. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> all right. But, and, but anyway, uh, yes, I'm excited for the expanded universe. And uh, Matt, where are you at? Uh, I was a big fan of Star Wars in the 70s and 80s <laughs> when I was a young man. Um, and it was great fun to get a chance to work on uh, the Star Wars special editions at, uh, during work my time on. at you ILM. Were, you were a, a stormtrooper. I was in it as uh, one of many replicated versions of me and uh, Scott Stewart and a couple other characters, I think, uh, who the rest were Stormtroopers. The rest of us just have to buy Stormtrooper skins in uh, Fortnite, but you got to wear the real McCoy. Yeah, and I, and I worked a little bit on Phantom Menace um, in my sort of latter days at ILM, and um, I remember joking around, we used to joke around and call Anakin Skywalker Mannequin Skywalker. Um, I was not a big <laughs> fan of the prequels. Um, and, you know, the new movies are fun. I didn't like Last Jedi as much as Force Awakens. Um, I will, of course, go see the, the newest film. I have been watching all of The Mandalorian. I, I will say this, though. I, I'm right on the edge just lately. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe there's a little old man coming through, but... Um, I'm a, I'm having a touch of Star Wars burnout lately. Okay. Well, I'm I'm I'd, I'd say somewhere in the middle. I I like all of the Star Wars stuff. I was a little disappointed with the newest ones because I thought they were you know not. I, I didn't mind the greatest hits one, but if they'd followed the greatest hits up with something that was more positive, um, uh, but yeah, like you know generally happy but not ecstatic and then we hit the mandalorian which i think is terrific <laughs> it's absolutely terrific it's the best thing i've seen in star wars uh in ages what do you guys think jason do you share my enthusiasm for the the uh we'll never see his face mandalorian uh yeah no i i mean i love pedro pascal uh even though we can only hear his voice but uh i I enjoy the series actually. Episode four was the weakest one for me, but but I did um, 
I I enjoy it. Like I I'm happy to sit down uh, and watch an episode. Like I'm excited to see it. I enjoy the world building. Like I said, and the nods back to uh, well to the original trilogy because this one takes place nine years after Jedi. Uh, so it's you know it's still in a more recent original trilogy zone, which I which I like. So yeah, I'm excited. Plus Baby Yoda. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll get to Baby Yoda in one second. And so, Matt, your your sort of initial take out of uh, Mandalorian were you all in, or you've been I mean, won I, over, or I, I mean, I, I look, I'm a I'm a huge um, supporter fan of uh, John Favreau. I like uh, so many of the things that he is doing, has done, is involved in. Um, this is fun. It's. Uh, it, it's pretty lightweight, you know? I, I like the initial couple episodes where there's sort of touches on both the Western and the samurai kind of uh, Kurosawa kind of samurai films. I think that's kind of fun. It's nice. I like the, I, I think Pedro Pascal was great in uh, Narcos. It's too bad uh, to have such an amazing actor and to yeah. never see his face is such a shame. Like, <laughs> I mean, he's such a he's such a compelling, uh, charismatic mm-hmm. guy on screen. And uh, I guess a lot of the times, or not a lot of the times, in a few of the episodes, it's not even him in the costume, which is kind of funny. Um, mm. But I mean, I, I think overall, like, it's something that I'm going to keep watching it. I'm enjoying watching it. I've got a free year of uh, Disney Plus through something i can't remember what service but some somehow i got a free year of it and um so it's i'll I'll definitely keep watching it i do feel uh, just a touch uh lately that uh you know the the disneyfication of uh and the marvelization of the star wars universe it's just i i kind of feel like uh this sounds kind of weird but i feel like there's almost too much uh star wars a little bit and maybe that's just because i'm like I said, I'm an old, I'm an old person now. I'm almost 50. And so, you know, my, uh, memories of it, um, maybe are, uh, more clouded with my age than anything Also, we're sort of caught in the whirlpool of episode nine and the Mandalorian at the same time, which is, uh, is going to be a lot. I think, uh, I think episode nine is the last movie for a while. So then it'll just be the shows as they roll out, which, I think and, we'll probably and on its be own, better. yeah, and on its own, I think you know the Mandalorian. It's it's it is without a doubt it's super fun. So I mean, I can't I can't take anything away from it in that regard. Yes, well, interestingly, you said I think you liked the the earlier episodes, which were all written by John Favreau, and he's coming back as in the writer. Obviously, he's the the creator of the shows um, for seven and eight. So he didn't write five and six, but he wrote the first four and he's written the last two. Uh, do you know who's directing the last one? I don't. Uh, no. I'll give you a hint. He played a droid in episode. Oh, oh Taika. Taika yeah. is directing it. So you're oh, going to finish with Taika directing, Favreau writing, and spoilers, please pause your, your podcast now if you don't want to hear you will, in fact, see his face. At least he takes off the mask, but he doesn't uh, doesn't do it to other people in the show. He does it in private, right? Because right. obviously, he does take off the mask to eat and yeah. stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, 
So the big thing about this series is that we've never seen a more uh, lovable, tweetable, uh, you know, memeable character uh, in popular culture accelerate so quickly into the zeitgeist as Baby Yoda. And they kept Baby Yoda a secret. And they did it with a puppet. So there's a lot to talk about with just yeah. Baby Yoda. So let's, let's go there because, I mean, I, I published on FX Guide that Baby Yoda, I thought, was magnificent and made me really happy. And I also <laughs> said in the same thing that I thought this whole crap about whether it was a puppet or not was a complete misnomer because, as we'll hopefully discuss in a moment, this show has the latest cutting-edge tech and does stuff digitally in a way no other show's ever done before. They just happen to choose to do Baby Yoda as a puppet. And so it's not that they're trying to be retro or old school or do it like they did in the original so much. They're just like, they're using the right thing for the right yeah, job. Exactly. And the right job in this case is a Muppet because that connects with all of us at every level and produces the most, um, you know, like seriously offensively cute thing in history. <laughs> um, so, so from a visual effects point of view, um, Matt, if you were, you know, the supervisor, would you have gone with a puppet, a Muppet, or would you have been tempted to do a greater range of motion digital character as we saw Yoda himself become a digital character? Uh, I mean, I think what they chose to do uh, was the right choice. <laughs> How's that? I mean, from what I understand, it's it's largely a puppet. Um, I think it's incredibly successful. Um, you know, I was just looking through my email to see if I could find it. I've been involved in these meetings uh, at the university I teach at where um, with these architects and they're, they're helping us sort of work on building this new... Um, kind of performing arts and innovation center building. And um, one of the guys on the team, the architectural team, his son is uh, working with the team that made the uh, the baby Yoda puppet. And so I was sort of oh, so wow. looking to see if I could find his name, but I couldn't find it in here. He sent me a picture of the credit of his son's name in the credits, <laughs> which I just thought was really funny because he, he'd heard about what sort of my background uh, in the process of the meeting, but I think what they've done in the in the in the um, show with that character is great. I mean, it's obviously, yeah, like you said, it's a cultural kind of zeitgeist. It's definitely captured, uh, you know, uh, it's like memeifiable beyond belief. It was. I just uh, saw Saturday Night Live uh, where they had uh, Kyle Mooney playing uh, Baby Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, on uh, I guess on the weekend update, the news uh, show on there. And um, I think it's really incredibly successful. Um, and I love all the stuff, the Werner Herzog uh, commentary <laughs> about uh, how he said that, you know, anyone who didn't cry on set when meeting it was a heartless, uh, you know, <laughs> albino alligator or whatever it was that he said. But I, th I think it's great. I think it's, it's, it's really impressive. Jason, would you have done a digital? You've actually worked with Muppets, right? You are, yeah, I've worked with all the You are our go-to Sesame yeah. Street guy. I mean, having, like you said, having worked with the Muppets, it is pure magic when you have talented operators and a, and a quality puppet. Uh, it, it, there is no doubt that that would be your route if you have the tool set and the talent to do that, which they obviously do. I think logic would dictate you would do a digital exploration to just know that you're really, you know, 
locked into the puppet uh, just to just to maybe for, uh, uh, you know, the off chance you'll need one for a scene. But I mean, I, personally, I would have always gone with the puppet. And I think to Matt's point, I think they did made the right choice because it's so there's so much interaction with it, uh, with him uh, that it's um, it, it would just I just, you know, much like the tech we're going to talk about with the backgrounds and all that stuff, the the thought process on the show seems to be using whatever makes the most sense to create the most tangible world. And I think that the puppet is the most, I mean, so many people pick it up. I mean, episode six, Amy Sedaris is holding it like for like uh, half the episode. And I think that would just be to see it switch between a a CG puppet and like a, you know, baby doll kind of, you know, obviously puppet thing. I I still think it would work uh, and it would be more trouble than it's worth. So the long answer is yes. I think the puppet was the right choice. I mean, the really interesting thing is it is digital some of the time, but when they make it digital, they make it look like it's a puppet, right? Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. you can't really pick it. But yeah, uh, yeah. here's the thing. I'm totally fascinated by the fact that, and I haven't done this myself, but obviously you have, that you can be standing there right in front of you is a, a puppeteer standing there talking, not like a ventriloquist who's pretending not to talk, like yeah. just completely there mm-hmm. with their hand up a bit of felt and you will not attribute the words coming out of the bit of felt to the person that's standing right there in your line of sight. A million I'm not percent. talking about a trick now. you like... Yeah. I mean, you must I've, have had conversations I have, with Muppets, right? I have, I have spoken to the puppeteers while they're holding the puppet and they're having a conversation with you and then they go and do their thing. And I, like you said... One eye sees the real world with a guy and he's, you know, like I've seen uh, David Rudman who does cookie and he's like, oh, cookie, you know, whatever. I see his face. I see the sound coming out of his mouth and the puppet above his head and another guy operating the other arm. Right. And they're doing their whole thing. And then I have the monitor on the other side of me. And when I look at the monitor, you're like, oh, shit, Cookie Monster's here. Like your brain at no point tells you that they're two separate, that they're the same thing. Ever. Yeah. And we've been doing yeah. it with them on and off for years, seven years or something like that. And it never gets old and it never ceases to work. And that's so like, yes, watching those guys on set work that puppet. Everyone on set is probably going, oh, every time they see the puppet do something because <laughs> it, you, you know, what I mean, like watching the episodes with my kid who's almost 13. Every time Baby Yoda comes on the screen, he's like, oh, he's so cute. You know, like. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And here's the thing, like, we're calling him Baby Yoda. He's, in fact, only ever referred to as either the child or the package. Yes, or, yes. So, I mean, it's our label, Baby Yoda. It's a media yeah. label. Yeah. Uh, we obviously, it looks like uh, a smaller version or a younger version of a Jedi Master Yoda yeah. that has uh, has existed in the in the universe. But, and you he's know, 50, we're told right? he's a toddler who's 50, yeah. Or, yeah. or <laughs> is it 50 or 95? Some number like that, right? Like, ridiculous yeah. So, yeah, I also want to make completely clear. I mean, I total, totally agree with, with uh, Matt's comment. I, you know, I've said I wanted to get a T-shirt made with in Favreau we trust because I would, you know, literally go and see anything he worked on now. But um, the fact that he kept it a secret 
just such a good thing. And in an age where everything is kind of, you know, pushed out, leaked and, and pumped and, you know, especially they could have made dolls and made a killing off them for mm-hmm. Christmas. To keep that quiet was just an exceptionally gifted decision. Uh, a much better marketing decision they could ever have done by, you know, oh, effectively yeah. uh, kind of promoting it via um, any form of uh, whatever. So, um, okay, so the story uh, is <clears throat> episodic television and clearly it's a Western. It's not a Western Western, but it's, you know, it's like the Western kind of uh, mine of stories that are being, um, you know, dug out here and and pretty successfully. And that's totally legitimate. Um, it's also very much for me interesting that it's sort of feels like a classic TV show where each week there's an episode and it's not like mm-hmm. we're getting part of a feature film. <clears throat> it's not like, you know, this week's episode only makes any sense if you saw last week's episode. It it sort of moves along a bit, but nevertheless, it's not like a, you know, movie cut into bits. It's yeah. half hour TV in a completely unhalf hour TV way on a Disney plus streaming service. It's very old school in some respects. Well, it's, it plays, it gives a nod to the original Rocketeer and other serials that, and Flash Gordon that made Lucas want to make Star Wars in the first place. So it only, it only makes sense uh, that that's sort of the format to me, at least. Yeah. And well, it's also, it's from a Western standpoint, it's also Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, yes. Hmm. yes mm-hmm. Sorry, Matt. Sorry, Matt. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say it's, you know, it's it's essentially a procedural, uh, you know, in terms of the structure of it as a as an episodic show. It's a procedural that follows, you know, a, a weekly formula, but that has um, a, a longer sort of... Um, you know, uh, thread weaving all of the episodes together within the context of a season. And I think structurally that's a really smart choice because it allows you both to sort of dive in and watch every episode and try to connect all the dots to the larger narrative, but it also allows for kind of the more casual viewer to sort of dip in and watch, you know, an individual uh, episode and see if, uh, and, and you don't necessarily have to follow uh, everything that's going on throughout. So... And I think the length is such an unusual, um, it's like they're 30, like 36 or 39 minutes or something. Isn't it? I think kind the of longest one goes up to 42, but yeah, yeah. it's normally like about random, 31. Yeah, they're like yeah. a random number. Which again, you Just can do on real, non-network quick, TV. Peter Clark is the name of the, mm. the son of the guy that I met uh, who is the puppeteer of Baby Yoda. I just wanted to give him a Good shout job, out. Pete. <laughs> Before we get into the tech, I just want to discuss one other thing, which I'm really fascinated by, um, Pedro Pascal's portrayal of the character in terms of an emotional delivery. See, I feel like he's got character and I feel like he's got almost a dry sense of humour at times and yet he's not really emoting much with his voice and we certainly aren't seeing his face. Am I alone? Am I just uh, anthropomorphising the... the helmet or do you guys agree that like it's remarkable to have a lead actor who you kind of don't see who yet you still feel i mean i feel tremendous sympathy and uh you know support for and everything else for the mandalorian or mando i mean it's i mean i get i get plenty of tone and and um pathos from him uh, which is obviously a nod to the writing because he's saying lines that are that are leading somewhere um, but also the 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 filmmaking, like 
the first two episodes or whatever where he kept going back with the um uh what's it called the uh uh oh, Beskar. The, the, video, the video game uh upgrade my armor get new potions yeah. get new mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i yeah. thought that was awesome you go and you and you and you sort of sit with the sage and says oh you know you should do this i'll make you this this is your sigil you know and discussing the sort of their ethos of of war or battle or or you know honor this is this the samurai stuff and i loved the every time you know he goes uh the second time when he gets the real big beskar sort of overhaul and she's making the she's making the armor and every hit goes to like a flashback of you know on on uh on mandalore uh mandalore oh yeah you know what i mean of the that family getting attached that was a very good way of doing yeah, it was great exposition, but had like tied yep. into the violence of the armor and and you know it was just it felt it felt reasonable uh, uh, for that moment. I think too, though, yeah, if you no. go back and you look at like uh, you know whether it's um, you know Yojimbo or if you look at uh, yeah. you know the the man with no name or whatever the sort of the Clint Eastwood cowboy character, so much can be conveyed and so much can be essentially quote unquote said with no dialogue. And so I think Mm -hmm. the fact that uh, he is the main character who uh, speaks um, very uh, judiciously, right? Like his words are very carefully chosen um, for the most part, aside from maybe his, uh, the few wry quips that he offers up uh, within the context of the show. And I think that that's part of it too, is that that kind of the, he the things are happening sort of near him and around him in terms of the dialogue in a scene and he sort of is our you know we're following him we're following his lead it's his story he's the title character and so i think that there's something really interesting about the what's unspoken from the character and that that actually it provides a really interesting way in for the audience to connect with him as a character well also because he because he doesn't speak that much when he does speak you just add weight to everything he's saying because he's not just talking, talking, talking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the writing is very clever for not having him do tons of exposition and just prattle on. Um, Yeah. And Nick Nolte. (laughs) (laughs) Was awesome. So, So one of you geeks can give me some more backstory on... Them, do is there a whole lot of like uh, I don't know sort of lore or something around the Mandalorians um, that explains why they are working in secret and um, have been you know so, I don't, so rare in the universe and I don't know that spiders? part. All I know the I mean the the only Mandalorian everyone only ever knew about was Boba Fett. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like I and, and I guess technically in the prequels um, the the um, uh, Django Fett was a Mandalorian as well. Um, so, as I mean, I'm sure there's a ton of stuff in like the Zon books and other books and other you know ex- expanded universe stuff that talks about the Mandalorians. I personally don't know much more about them than just the Boba Fett stuff. Um, but I mean, so Matt, I, you were saying earlier that. Matt, you were saying earlier that it isn't always played. He isn't always played by Pascal. Uh, can you explain that? I did not know that. I mean, I, uh, I assume he was the stunts or something, but 
It's my understanding in the, I think it's episode four. I was just reading about this online someplace. And it, I think that was the one that the uh, Bryce Dallas Howard directed. Yeah. Um, that Pedro Pascal is not actually, obviously he's doing the voice, but he's not in the costume during that whole episode. And that um, it's actually, I think he has two different body doubles, uh, you know, on set, uh, you know, stand-ins, doubles for him. And um, I believe it was one of his, <clears throat> excuse me, one of his two doubles um, who was the primary actor working with the director uh, in that episode. I'm not sure why he was unable to be present, but, um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting given that the character is, you know, fully helmeted and costumed that, like, you can kind of have that freedom uh, as an actor. And uh, I think whomever... I can't remember the name of the guy who was the the double um, in that episode, but uh, if I hadn't read that, there's no way I would have even known it. You know, no. so I mean, it's yeah. a credit to the to both the the uh, actor uh, in the costume, but also uh, you know the director and the editorial team, like the way that it's really seamless. Actually, Sanctuary was one of my favorite episodes. The one where he has the almost love interest, um, and Baby Yoda looks so happy. Because yeah, otherwise, Baby Yoda's in a cupboard. And, and I don't think Baby Yoda should be kept in a cupboard. And it's, a, it's the, the opening of it is a retelling of either Seven Samurai or the Magnificent Seven. You know, oh, yeah. like the oh, whole right. thing of yeah. the villagers and they yeah. come to him asking well, actually, for help. I think, I think of you're the referring to the and, plot line. No, I think you're actually referring to the original plot line from The Three Amigos, not those other yeah. ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is there a, we all have an El Guapo. In our case, yes. it's the real El Guapo. <laughs> right. Uh, um, yes. Um, I, well, that would be Yojimbo, right? Because Yojimbo is, is uh, or se- sorry, Seven Samurai is Magnificent mm-hmm. Seven, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the tech for the visual effects. So there's obviously some straight out visual effects here, you know, big space um, blowing up things in space docks and stuff. Let's assume for a second that's done with a traditional uh, pipeline. What's not traditional is the fact that they built um, a cube. Now, uh, a version of this, though not the actual one that they were filming with, was shown at uh, SIDGRAPH in Los Angeles, which was a... Um, uh, so for you who you don't know, for those of you listening who don't know, um, imagine a cube literally uh, where the top, the back, the left and the right sides, but not the ground and obviously not the front, are video walls. And these video walls are accurately to the camera's point of view, portraying a virtual landscape. And I say to the camera's point of view, because it looks normal if you're standing near the camera, but once the camera starts moving, the parallax shift is all designed to correctly provide in a two-dimensional sense what would be happening in three dimensions. So a tree that is closer to camera isn't going to stay fixed relative to the background the way that it would have on a tracking shot if it was just a, uh, a video uh, flat thing that had been pre-recorded. So it's a dynamic update of what's going on in the world. And they did this for several reasons. Firstly, because if you think about it for a second, you're going to get the right kind of lighting pretty much on anyone standing in that space. So if I'm standing under a blue sky and there are green trees around me, the spill from the green and the blue overhead light is gonna be pretty accurate. Not obviously perfectly accurate, but pretty accurate. Um, The next thing is if you do have to do a green screen on me for for some reason, uh, you could just put a square behind my head. So from the camera's point of view, this square would be you know, rock steady, perfectly generated without any uh, issues, but only sit behind my head and I wouldn't suddenly be in a giant green stage. 
And then I guess thirdly, it really helps the actors to have a sense of being on a location, albeit um, still in a studio, when you've got sets. And so this is kind of a kind of a set. Um, it's not quite the same. You can't walk up and, and hang off that tree that's in the background, but at least when you're walking around, you know, it feels like uh, you're kind of uh, in an environment. I, I think those are the three primary benefits. Are they, Matt? Is there a, have I missed a fourth one? That seems to be the... I think, I mean, I think that kind of covers it. I feel like, you know, it's it's a really exciting, it feels like it, it has so much shared DNA with um, the the sort of virtual production work that was done in, um, you know, scouting locations and going around in the, um, in the sort of, uh, game world in, uh, for, um, Lion King, but it's sort of externalizing some of that universe and putting it using yeah. the video walls and the, um, the camera, uh, matching the camera movement to the parallax of the real time rendered environments on the video wall. I feel like that's, it's sort of an externalization of that process and bringing it into the studio in a way that, um, yeah, has obviously profound impacts for the actors and also, um, can certainly, uh, accelerate, uh, your VFX pipeline in some pretty exciting ways. Well, well also, also tying in the studio lighting to the, to the, Unreal Engine lighting, uh, the game engine lighting, so that when you change to Mike's point, when you change to a sunset, you know, a generated sunset, the studio lighting is tied to the same DMX cues. So the studio lighting will go warm or cool or, you know, whatever it's purpley or whatever you need. So you're getting that same uh, same practical lighting that's matching the, the, the walls. Um, uh, but Jason, the other thing that's key about this is what it provides in what's known as final pixels. And so the yes. term final pixels means that if you, Jason, are the uh, director or cameraman standing there and you aim up on Matt standing as a stormtrooper on our sort of now virtual set displayed on this cube and you like what you see that's um, it. and obviously the background will be a little defocused because you're focused on Matt because mm -hmm. he's such a hero. Um, you press record and you've got it. Yes, there's no green screen. Yeah. There's no comping later. Yeah. It's 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 a done shot. Yeah, that's what's. I mean, in this case, I believe. I mean, I don't know for sure, but just visually looking at it, and the, the DP, uh, at least the main DP is Greg Frazier, and I think the other guy is Baz Iodine, Iodine or Iodine, who does an awesome job as well. It looks to me to be the same as Rogue One, which was Alexa sixty five with the Panavision. 1.25 ultra panatars which is like you know just a slightly squeezed anamorphic because you don't need it so much squeezed on the larger format but um to your point putting the background out of focus which it is 99 percent of the time when they're using the walls um is i mean you get you get bokeh from light pings and stuff that are in the mm -hmm. background. Like it, it works to your point, Mike, about, uh, about final pixels. I mean, it, it works exactly as close as it could, um, to, to the real world. And I think the fourth thing you were trying to find is not a technical benefit, but a practical benefit in that you don't have to go on location to get certain shots. Right. right. And the good example of that is like when they had the shots that were in the ice kind of environment, they yeah. sent one guy to Iceland to film stuff and then they built yeah. a uh, projected virtual world and yeah. then everybody gets to stand on the Iceland location in yeah. the warmth of Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and it's practical a good point about foreground 
stuff too. Like, you know, yeah. the close-ups on feet are on dirt and rocks and whatever, but in the background is, you know, um, you know, the video wall. Yeah, and it was a good point about Greg Fraser, the the Australian, I might add, a cinematographer yep. who is really good. But um, <laughs> he, uh, of course, did Rogue One with Gareth Edwards, and mm-hmm. uh, he's done a bunch of really hardcore stuff like uh, Zero Dark Thirty. But yeah, he's uh, incredibly well he's respected. A beast. Yeah, um, yeah, DOP. Um, do you do you work with him? Would you know him, or you know? I don't know. I don't know. Him. Uh, I mean, he's I, a very very well known in Australia, of course. Yeah, I mean, uh, 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 I mean, I know Gareth, and obviously they've worked together with a lot of mutual friends. But I've never met the guy here. He's a very lovely gentleman. Uh, but uh, and even talking to Matt Workman from Cinetracer and uh, Cinematography Database, he he did that. He did a huge thing for for SIGGRAPH with uh, Unreal and that cube mm-hmm. to sort of show yep. it off and show off the abilities of it. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, I find the technology fascinating and personally, when I was just in LA, talked to a lot of my DP friends and, and sort of production friends about it. And everyone's like super kind of really excited about it. The possibilities of you, of what it can give you creatively. Can I just say, I thought it was really quick aside. uh, Yeah, of course. You mentioned Matt Workman. I don't know if you guys uh, have the time to do this. I've been carving out the time to do it. I've been watching Matt Workman's uh, YouTube channel and all his, uh, as many of his live uh, broadcasts as I can, where he, uh, in the last couple of weeks, started learning Houdini. And uh, it's been been a riot and uh, a heck of a lot of fun to watch. But he he's a, a a real character and an incredibly talented guy. So it's been a lot of fun watching his uh, his channel. Yeah, yeah, he's a good. Team. Yeah, I've known Matt for a little while, and uh, yeah. he's a good guy. We've covered stuff on him with FX Guide, but um, his tool as well uh, is an incredible mm-hmm. tool for doing cinematography. He's just revamping it at the moment, so a couple of features that were there have been um, uh, sort of being reintroduced over time. But if you want to play around with lighting as a student. Uh, you can do a lot worse than run up his um, absolutely his tool, but yeah, no, I was hanging with him in SIGGRAPH when he was doing those demos, um, and yeah, he found it he found it really reassuring just how immediate it was and how somebody else could be his do uh, his lighting uh, yeah. you know gaffer, and just stand yeah. there with a an iPad uh, as a gaffer and just you know he'd say okay well just give me a bit more of this and that now there are a couple of things you should add if you've got a lo- a strong sunlight and you say to that gaffer who's holding the ipad hey you know throw me up a sun um you're not going to get the characteristics of no. a parallel spotlight that you would get um no. if you had a huge soft sun you know in a mega studio yeah. having said that you can slip a gap sometimes between the panels to drop in a um mm-hmm. like a um you know, a large traditional light to give additional lighting. Uh, and the other thing that I stupidly, I stupidly said to one of the guys was, you know, do, do you know, do you have enough light coming out of these things? You know, and he was like, <laughs> mate, we've got it on the lowest setting. It yeah. runs. <laughs> and so then just to reinforce my stupidity, because, you know, I kind of pride myself on having some understanding of maths, I stupidly said, oh, but of course, when it gets bigger, you might not have enough light. If you made it a bigger, you know, sort of, box than this <laughs> he just looked at me and went inverse square yeah uh yes inverse square law of course yes yeah. of course you have a bigger panel so you have more yeah. light so more, of course it more panels works. equals more light I'll, yeah. I'll just go over here and get a get a get a coffee um, yeah <laughs> that's right. 
Um, so yes, yeah. so there's, there's no Senior moment. moment. With, uh, we call that a senior moment, Mike. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Yes. So obviously, as a panel gets bigger, it gets bigger both horizontally and vertically, um, which means, you know, as it gets bigger, it goes up uh, by a square in area. And thus, uh, the fact that the, um, the light is moving further away and it falls off by a square, it all balances out. And so it's, you know, it's not a technical problem. Um, so, so these panels are, are good. Um, they're also... Uh, Jason, now LEDs have got to a point where we can get a very faithful spectral reproduction of mm -hmm. um, light. By that, I mean we don't have the sort of nasty spikes that uh, cause skin to be a little peculiar when you actually record them on uh, Aries or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you'd use LED lights, I presume, just normal. Yeah, we use tons of LED lights. And, yeah, I mean, the CRI is so high on these things now that you don't see – it doesn't look like, you know, you put your face up to a rear projection TV in 1982 – or 84 or whatever, you know what I mean? You see all the, all the pixels and the, you know, all the, the different colors and what, I mean, they're so seamless now and the light is so even like you were saying, and even what you were talking about before about all the benefits of the wall. I mean, consider this benefit alone that he's wearing silver armor that's shiny. So like yeah, yeah. you, you wouldn't want to put him in a green room anyway. You'd, you'd, pull, you'd blow your brains out trying to comp that. I mean, it would be insane. So, And it's interesting, isn't it, to draw a line between this and the, and the cube in gravity um, because right. the cube mm -hmm. in gravity didn't quite have enough resolution that they could get final pixels. So what yeah. they were trying to do primarily light. is yeah. get the lighting right on her. And so you had this cube and she was sitting, um, the actress was sitting in a uh, sort of like effectively a cherry picker. Uh, it was more complicated than that. That gimbal that allowed uh, the you know to look like uh, she was moving a bit, and then of course they could rotate the Earth so it appeared to be on her left, below her, to her right, whatever. And so it felt like the light was coming from the Earth and it was bouncing up correctly mm -hmm. and it was giving a really interesting reproduction. But at that stage, um, that idea, which I think actually in truth uh, is an idea that was first. Uh, suggested by Dr. Paul DeBevic, who was mm -hmm. at ICT and, and then at, now at Google. That idea of having a video wall as your lighting thing um, is now progressed because, as you say, the LEDs are better and they're now producing a much bigger cube uh, in the case of gravity. It was actually a relatively small cube that yeah. she was, um, Sandra Bullock was in. Now this is like multiple actors can be standing there and, as you say, you've got, you know, the illusion of entire sets, like as in buildings and stuff, which mm -hmm. in fact are just uh, facades. Um, I also imagine that it's just a lot more fun to act in than, you know, it's like a stage production, except sure. for the stage has got yeah. the most elaborate kind of um, graphical kind of environment around it as possible. Well, I mean, think about it this way, even on a smaller scale, like I was talking to a DP friend of mine who's going to, you know, was, was his, he was like, here's how I would use it. I'm going to be on a stage with a house, right? I'm in a house set on, on a stage. And normally I'd have green out the window and I'd have to deal with it. I could put an LED wall out the window and I could have the same sunlight in the same spot all day if I want it. And I could have the same car come by at exactly the right time that I needed to come by. And all the cues out the window could be exactly the cues I need to happen every time I need him to happen. I mean, that that alone for like just regular episodic TV or or streaming episodic or anything like that. I mean, that's a that's like the lowest tech usage of that ever, but it's still 
to your point, final pixels. Well, Matt, we sort of saw something similar to this in Oblivion. Do you remember with uh, oh, Tom yes, Cruise? Oh, uh, yeah, massive. Yeah, in the in the the house, right? The, Sky Tower. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, you know this this all of the the technological development around this. It's interesting to actually. I hadn't really thought about tying it back into both Oblivion and uh, and Gravity, but sort of as kind of the the birth of some of this kind of. Um, uh, development of some of this use case, we were sort of uh, kind of bantering around sort of the decade a little bit and talking about things, uh, visual effects uh, films and developments. I think this is one of those things that uh, certainly seems to have been birthed in the last decade, but I think we'll start to see uh, it taken to whole new heights in the coming decade too. It seems like a really um, pretty profound uh, paradigm shift in the way in which um it's it's a new tool that offers a whole new set of choices um, uh, for filmmakers uh, on set. It's it's really really exciting, and yet it's going to change production, right? Because you have to pick those environments and work on those environments much earlier. Now you do that with costume, right? Like if yeah, sure. if you know a character is wearing a costume, The Mandalorian, and now. Sometimes that's not true. I know that the the uh, time travel suits in uh, Infinity uh, War was were you know put yeah. on later. But generally speaking, mm-hmm. you know you can commit to costume, but you don't normally have to commit to environments like these. Do you think? Because that's really when we get back to the virtual production, the Unreal Engine is providing you with uh, enough quality to produce something that is final pixels. But also by the same token, you have to get your production assets running uh, properly at a level that you're happy with, signed off. Otherwise, those final pixels will need to be replaced and we're back in photo again. I think it's, I think it's something that's challenging, but I also feel like it's, you know, for, for so long, uh, at least in the sort of, in the, the, my, my uh, old days of uh, visual effects, which now seems like, you know, eons ago, but, um, you know, we used to always talk about, you know, it, we were always referred to, visual effects were always referred to as post-production, right? And we've talked about it many times on this show that the more engaged you are throughout production and in pre-production, the more successful execution you're going to have of all of your um, effect sequences, all your assets. And I think this kind of development to what you're saying, Mike, it's, it's actually kind of great in a way because I don't think it it locks you in or or forces your hand in any way that isn't just like you said it's no different than uh, costume or makeup like it's a it's a choice that you're making uh, a creative decision that you're making uh, in terms of production design and execution in the same way that you would for all those other departments and so to have this um, uh, kind of development where you're going to be using these assets on set and to have to make some of those decisions early on, I think it has it has huge benefits across the board for um, everybody and it brings visual effects um, uh, more into uh, the conversation much earlier in a way that I think is uh, more than appropriate. I mean, I think it's happened you know in other ways for a long time now. But it wasn't always the case. And so I think this just pushes it further in that direction. Yeah, I mean, people having to make creative decisions and sticking with them is like how film started. So (laughs) people having people, I think it's a plus for people to have to like stick to their guns and not say we'll figure it out later in a million iterations and and a ton of money because we have it. You know what I mean? 
Well, and, we were talking about this at the at the university in the cinema program about how, you know, the we've shot 35 millimeter in the cinema program at the school for a long time. And there's been some pushback and like, why are we shooting 35? Because we're not really projecting 35. And one of the arguments that always comes back that I think is, is a good one is that shooting 35, it forces you to be mm -hmm. um, really sort of particular and precious and cautious. Like you're just not running all day long. And, you know, <laughs> the best though is somebody had said like, well, we could still shoot digital, but just like, we just set a timer, you know, like you could do the <laughs> same thing. You could, you could, you could put the same kind of constraint uh, creatively on yourself and force but uh, I don't people to think creatively. I mean, it's sort of silly to think of it in that context, but it, but it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's the, it's the, it's not only the time constraint you get because of the roles, but it's the, uh, constraint you have of having to expose it and get everything. There's no metadata. It's, it's right. exposed and shot the way it needs to be. And of course you can do pushes and bleach bypass and all sorts of chemical stuff afterwards. But if you don't capture it right, you're screwed. And I yeah. think that that is a huge lesson that a lot of people don't learn. Uh, even if you go on to shoot digitally only, you understand what it means to properly expose an image and not just be like, oh, I don't know, auto or whatever. Right. I mean, if I've had friends who've made movies that chose 35 when they could, could have shot red or something else. And, you know, I said, you, you kind of screwed yourself because they'd only, they budgeted for like two takes per scene. You know what I mean? And, right, right. And I was like, wasn't that nerve wracking? And they're like, yeah, in retrospect, maybe it wasn't the best idea, but, but it was, you know, we had to make decisions and, oh, if we did, if we really needed three takes for this thing, we had to figure out what other takes maybe couldn't, maybe were more, you know, you know, uh, uh, singles or, or faster run or, you know, like, and that's fine. Cause mm -hmm. that's how people made movies again forever. Um, I think the, the wall scenario and the game engine scenario is a mixture of, of both the current post world figured out later and the original world of make a decision because you can say, oh, we're going to have a forest here. And oh, I love the forest. And then you get on set and you're like, oh shit, that tree just doesn't look right when we pan by it, move it, get rid of it, move it, shrink it down, make it bigger. Like you can still fix things on the fly. So I think it's sort of the best of both worlds. Uh, in terms of your create, creative solutions. But I would love, you know, if I was making a film that was using that wall, it would be, I think it would be so much better to show up on the day and shoot in a real studio with real backgrounds and really feel it on on the monitor and be like, oh yeah, look at that. Oh, it looked like, instead of worrying about the comp later and being like, oh, make it more defocused in the background or less or, you know, like, working it out. Like I want that stuff coming through the lens. I want it all. Well, yeah. Mushed yeah you're not, on you're, you're not having to work to match, you know, yeah. your live action lighting to yeah. your as yet sort of unseen, uh, yeah. computer generated background. Yeah. I mean, that's, right. that's and, a huge advantage. And to Mike's point, the actors are going to, you know, no, actor doesn't want to act to a tennis ball in a green room. All of a sudden they have, you know, uh, an environment where they, f you know, feel like, so they're, you know, they're, they're seeing it in their peripheral vision, maybe not in the helmet, but, you know, uh, 
but also I was thinking while you guys were talking about oblivion, the, the interesting sort of journey from oblivion to here is that oblivion was the massive led wall that was projecting right. in like 300 degrees. And it was like a 50 foot, you know, thing, but that, um, what's his name? Joe, um, the director, uh, who did Tron had to Kaczynski. go out. Yeah. Kaczynski had to go to like mountaintops in Hawaii and shoot that stuff on like four reds, you know, to make a panorama to project. Right. So he had to mm-hmm. manually do the thing that now you can do in the game engine, uh, without going to Hawaii. Although, you know, to Mike's point, you know, sometimes you go to Iceland to get certain, you know, real footage to mix in and whatever. But, uh, you know, I think, yeah, I, I just think it's a, it, and, and for what you said, Matt, I think it's, even though we snuck it under the wire, you know, of the decade for an advancement, I think this is the birth of like a, of a very important tool in the visual effects movie, you know, compatibility tool set personally. I mean, I'd say a couple of other things. I'd say firstly, it's not just feature films, right? Like, I mean, sure. Well, commercials, commercials. Yeah, of course. Because the setup time is so small, relatively speaking. Like I can have this at my house, at my studio, at my uh, client's place, looking at stuff, be happy with it. And then, you know, on set, relatively smaller number of physical props and I'm, you know, shooting the person holding the product shot um, in any environment I done will feel like. So I think that's really interesting. Secondly, because... Certainly driving um, shots. Yeah, driving shots, yeah. But the other thing Mm -hmm. is the Unreal Engine would... You know, like you've got a stage that's running with the Unreal Engine. Well, like anyone can download the Unreal Engine. It's not like it's yep, super yep. proprietary tech that's only available to one person. And so it would all be very well and good as long as I had a, you know, $150 million facility, but I don't, so I can't do it. Like if this was for hire in LA and it was running Unreal, just make up a, from a template and then here, here's the template, download Unreal, do whatever you want and bring it in. Um, I do think, though, the the slight thing that's kind of interesting to me is, you know how we sort of tend to talk about stuff and you, you'll say uh, that words start to become a bit meaningless, like it's a historical kind of reference. And to a certain extent, you would say that about post-production. We still use the term post, but it isn't really post. I would right. say the same thing's going to happen to the term game engine. Like we, we call mm-hmm. it a game engine, but at what point is it the Unreal uh, producing with ray tracing on an RTX card? I mean, a game engine... Maybe it's just me. That just brings a certain connotation of what it's going to be doing and how it's going to be doing it, which just doesn't, in The Mandalorian, it ever does it, just doesn't, I mean, it might feel like a game from the idea of, oh, I'm going to go back and get my upgrades to the armor. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like a game from any visual point of view or yep. from a VFX point of view. Yeah, it'll just be called a real-time engine, I'm imagining, or something like that. Yeah, but I mean, it'll still be called a game engine, I'm sure, right? But... You know, it's just... I guess, yeah, I mean, it's a semantic thing, but it just feels like it's when you call it a game engine, at least in the context of describing this, it doesn't feel like it's, um, you know, minimizing uh, the technology. It's it's sort of in reference to sort of its historical path in terms of its arrival um, at this type of use case, right? So I'm not saying it's a derogatory comment, but it's just, you know, it's it's... You're not using it as a game engine, right? You're using right. It yeah, as it's a film engine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and so it's just you know it doesn't seem odd to us because we're just so used to it. But if you were coming in cold and learning English, you'd be like, "Why is this calling a game engine? <laughs> right? Where, where is the game?" <laughs> um, yeah. The other thing that uh, we saw on uh, Solo 
with running this kind of stuff with a game mm-hmm. engine, though in this particular case it was run to projected, and something we haven't really discussed, is you can also live play it. And by play it, I don't mean like a game, I mean more like an instrument. So, for example, on Solo, when they wanted to have uh, shots fired at the crew in the Millennium Falcon, the director could press a button on an iPad and that would cause that to happen in the game engine, which means there'd be something that the actors would see that they'd all react to and, of course, the correct contact lighting being thrown over their faces. Mm-hmm. And so to the same extent, uh, you would do that with the cube in that you could have something happening, like a lightning strike, whatever you wanted, really, but you would be able to actually yourself say when you press that button, not just play it back. And if the actors hadn't finished their line of dialogue and were out of sync with the video playback, you'd have you need to go again kind right. of thing. In um, Solo and that's too, another, wasn't they were they were using a, a big parabolic screen too? Yeah, they, mm. yeah, yeah. It was a projected uh, system with you know really cool tech. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, uh, but it was just. It was still running off a game engine. It was just not right. an LED wall. It was a... Uh, well, yeah, and that, and that interactivity, I guess, too, is the point. More it's than the anything. interactivity that I'm... Yeah. yeah. Like, it's a really interesting thing when you can sort of be working with the timing. Uh, imagine, like, a comedy would be really good like this, right? Where you could be like, you know, you have to exactly time when a beat happens with something in the background or whatever for it to be funny. And you don't have to try and reverse engineer that or just leave well, it blank and put it in later. Yeah, it's, it's like well, the, that it's comes like back the technological to the game term. Because you are playing it in that in that you know, <laughs> yeah. sense. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah, it's like but, the it's the technological modern day equivalent of uh, Alfred Hitchcock throwing birds at Tippy Hendren or something. Yeah. Well, it's like Cronen, Cronenberg on on the dead zone was firing a three fifty seven Magnum in the air to make Christopher Walken freak out. Like randomly, <laughs> you know what I mean, so that like, would freak me out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> that, that would work. <laughs> I could see that working. Um, so the Mandalorian, I think, uh, just to round out our conversation, is also probably way more successful than even Disney um, in its wildest dreams imagined. It's clearly been commissioned for series two, as has a bunch of other stuff that's come out recently in this kind of uh, new age of uh, mega streaming platforms. So over on the Apple TV Plus, for example, they're powering ahead with series that um, getting greenlit for series two before even series one has has, uh, settled in. And they don't need to conform to the same ratings profile. Similarly, you don't get that same uh, control shifting to the trades or to the papers saying, hey, this is a hit or this is a flop. Um, So in a sense, that's a good thing from my point of view because it means that you can actually run a show to find an audience. Now, as I said, I don't think that's the case with The Mandalorian because it it really just exceeded all expectations. But if you've got a show... um, maybe, I don't know, it's C on Apple uh, TV Plus or something like that, that, you know, just may not go well on a on a network television where if you're not good out of the gates, you suddenly get stung with this thing. And, and quite frankly, that's happening with feature films as well, right? If you don't have a great opening weekend, you just labelled as not being a success and then no one goes to see it because they read it wasn't very good, mm-hmm. but they didn't actually read it wasn't very good. They just read that it didn't make lots of money. Um, yeah. Well, like so, the last Terminator movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what did you think of the last Terminator movie? And most people would be reacting to the box office, I think, more than the narrative. Yeah. Um, I think Tim Miller got a really dud deal on that. Like, they could just, 
you know, and, and then you get to this whole thing, well, how much money do you think it was going to make, right? Because <laughs> if you say, well, it wasn't going to make much money to start with, um, it could be a mega hit at a certain level. Um, but then again, the trades are publishing, you know, well, it, it costs 200 million or whatever, so it doesn't make this much. So well, Joker is a perfect example of that, right? I mean, what was that? They gave him like 60 million or 50 million or it was something that was, you know, way under what any other superhero movie makes would get. And it made up over a billion dollars. Like, you know, that was not a movie they were expecting to make money on. Yeah, but 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 they but you don't control the narrative when you're away from this model. But in you're in this model, you yes. do control the narrative, right? Because right. in the case of The Mandalorian, it's clear that it's found an audience, right? Because it's just mm-hmm. become like this kind of zeitgeist touchstone, um, especially around Baby Yoda. But you could have another show in the same um, similar kind of uh, setup that isn't so obviously a success and you just wouldn't know actually whether people are watching it. Um, well, here's a good example. Unless Netflix tells us, we don't know how many people are tuning into the latest Martin Scorsese three and a half hour, uh, you know, epic. We just guess that The Irishman is popular, but we don't get to control well, that in... Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, on every initially. critic's top ten best list of the year. Mm, but you there know, are I mean, there are lots of films that the critics have liked that haven't found box office, and in well, fact, good point. Yeah, have suffered from press that claim that it's a flop. I guess I'm just saying is like these productions, it, they have a different narrative, and that that is. Um, mm-hmm. So you could, if you wanted to, if you were a Disney, uh, put on a show and let it have a lot more time to breathe before having to you know, deem that it's a huge success or a huge failure. And and you don't have to give out those figures because you don't have advertisers. And at mm-hmm. the end of the day, the reasons they give out the ratings, not because they're trying to encourage the audience to be influenced by uh, popular press uh, box office tallies or whatever. It's uh, not box office, but obviously um, uh, ratings success. It's because they, you know, on television are doing that for, for advertisers. Which well, might to not be driven add, by that too, I think it, it gives, it sort of creates almost like a laboratory-like environment where it gives under, if, if that's not the driving factor for the decision makers who are sort of, you know, green lighting these projects on these sort of cloistered uh, systems, then I think it's really, it's great for creators too because it gives, uh, you know, either... Uh, it's you're willing to take a risk and take a chance on something yeah. maybe that's uh, not a, a an obvious done deal. I think The Mandalorian seems like something that would be probably a success, but I mean, you could certainly see that with other shows. So here's a question for you. So they don't have the advertisers, so they don't have the ad breaks. So because they don't have the ad breaks, we don't have the in, the inflicted three-act or five-act structure that we typically had on episodic television. Do you think that you still see that three-act structure in The Mandalorian or do you feel like that concept that was so dedicated by those commercial breaks, just kind of breaking up the program, are no longer the beats that that we have to uh, follow or the drummer has to... No, I mean, I think it's, it's still in the standard, you know, first, second, third act kind of thing. Uh, I don't think they're really breaking with convention on that, but I don't really think they need to. I think to your point, Mike, they're just, they just don't have to. uh, And what you were saying before about some episodes are 36, some are 42, some are, they have the ability to say, um, which I think is more important than uh, because they get to skip the commercial breaks. They can say, well, we're going to let this breathe and it feels better at 37 instead of having to make a 
22 minute, 30 minute show or a 48 minute, 60 minute show to make room for commercials. They can just, I mean, we're working on a series right now and the, the studio is saying, you know, make the episodes, you know, we want them at this duration, but if they're slightly shorter or slightly longer, if the episode is playing, then that's fine which I, I appreciate as a former editor having to like squeeze the shit out of a scene or cut something that was really good because we just had to make 22 minutes is stupid. But I mean, that's well, the actually, format. That's a, but you've also touched on a really another huge point, which is the sort of elephant in the room, I guess, which is if you take Big Bang Theory, which was notionally a half hour show like this yeah. is, they were only producing 18 to 22 minutes of actual content right? because the rest of the time was being sold to advertisers. So you didn't just have, you know, the constraint of, I can't go over 30 minutes. You couldn't even go to 30 minutes. You yeah, yeah, no, it was 22, 22. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously it works. It's not, I mean, that's how, that's how those shows were developed around advertisers or whatever. But if you don't have to have that, then I think that shows that can breathe more, like the Big Bang Theory is based on a certain pace. Those types of shows where you joke, 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 laugh, joke, 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 laugh, set up, set up, set up. You know, it's, right. it's a formula. I'm not saying that in a negative way. It's just how those shows are made. Uh, Mandalorian has a formula too, but but the the ability to let a scene, you know, be like, well, when we wrote it, it was five pages, but so that's uh, you know approximately five minutes, but it works better at seven minutes. Great. You know what I mean? Like I just think that f- that freedom is is makes for better television. Well, so Matt, people have said that the Mandalorian's kind of slow and that there mm. are long sort of shots. Well, I could almost argue that they're allowed to give themselves permission to do that because they actually have in a half hour show the ability to not have commercials and run to forty minutes, right? Yeah, uh, and, I, and I, did you, I think it. Oh, sorry. Did I what? No, no, go. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say. I I, I think. Uh, I, I could understand that um, critique, but I, I I actually feel like it actually works to the show's advantage. I I do think to the question of the three act structure, kind of does it still have that? I think it certainly does per episode. It does feel like each episode is its own sort of capsule, you know, that you can. It starts with the ship taking off, uh, you know, uh, landing somewhere, and it ends with the ship taking off somewhere, you know, like. And I think that that kind of. Um, formulaically works really well. But I do think they spend some time, uh, at least in a couple episodes, there's a couple bits where they sort of luxuriate uh, in world building and in the environment in particular. I'm thinking of the, um, I can't remember what episode it was, episode three maybe or five, where they're on the, it's him and the the young upstart uh, wannabe bounty hunter guild guy and they get on their their motorcycles there and they go sort of... Um, you know, uh, uh, what, what's the um, easy ridering out across the desert, you know, and I feel like there's a few shots in that uh, sequence that uh, sort of take their time. And even a couple of the shots, I think at night, uh, where he's sort of walking off to go, I can't remember what he had to go get, but he was going to get something. So he um, needed the uh, the creature to get them back into, uh, because, you know, the... Um the prisoner was going to be brought in and to bring her in, they mm-hmm. needed to get her in on the whatever it was. Uh, what's the creature that um, they'd seen earlier? Uh, oh, I can't remember. I can't anyway. remember. But but I, I think that stuff's really great. I, I love uh, when we're given 
if it's not, uh, you know, excruciatingly dull, I love it when we're given opportunities in a episodic, um, uh, or certainly in a feature too, but where we're given time to sort of sit in the place or sit with the characters. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of get that almost like David Lean, kind of like um, Lawrence of Arabia, kind of those long, <laughs> those long shots that really give you a sense of place and of mood or potentially in, in that case of grandeur. Um, you know, I think that kind of stuff is, is so... Uh, it's cinematic and it makes the small screen experience of watching uh, something made essentially for television feel more cinematic too, by kind of uh, spending time uh, in shots like that. I think it, I think it's great. Uh, it's a Drewback and it was episode five. Oh, the Drewback. Uh, yeah. Oh, right. Sorry. I just want to do that before anyone like wrote in emails to point out my <laughs> stupidity. Drewback, you fool. <laughs> We've had, we've yeah. had enough of that, Mike. You, my or, uh, rather, um, uh, uh, Matt, you were with Dubacks in the special edition. Yeah. You, you yeah. hung out with them for crying out loud. <laughs> in a way. I've never seen them on film. I've never written yeah. them like you have. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, look, uh, there's not much to say about this episode other than we adore it to death. We, we think it's innovative in visual effects. It completely embraces the right technology for the right thing in, in Baby Yoda producing undoubtedly um, the decade's most uh, marvellous uh, uh, and adorable and memeable creature. Um, so, yeah, I think we're, we're all on an agreement. It's really good. And I'm certainly looking forward to Chapter 7 and Chapter 8. Chapter 8... Uh, comes out on I think on the twenty seventh of December, finishing out this uh, this eight run uh, first uh, season, and uh, yeah, so looking forward to uh, where they take this. I hope we don't get too much. I'd like it if they held back a bunch of stuff, knowing that they could go longer, and so you know we didn't have to get a whole lot of stuff wound up by the end of uh, eight, and we could still have no name for Baby Yoda at the end of eight, and mm-hmm. and uh, explore that in upcoming ones, but. Uh, final thoughts, Jason, before we, uh, we wrap up the app. Um, no, I mean, I think this, we sort of hit a lot of it. Uh, I'm enjoying it. I'm looking forward to see how people use this tech more and I hope they talk about it. So, so like we can know, and it's not a secret. (laughs) Matt. Uh, I, I mean, I think this show's been super fun. I'm totally digging all the uh, science fiction on streaming services. Uh, this one for all mankind on the, uh, oh, what is that, on the Apple service and um, the new season of uh, The Expanse on the Amazon. There's so much really fun uh, sort of science fiction fantasy type uh, entertainment right now that uh, it's an embarrassment of riches. Yeah, and I know that Jason's really been digging in deeply to High School Musical, the musical, the series, the musical. Uh, It's on the list. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, where can people connect with you, Uh, Matt? Uh, You can find anything and everything about me at mattwallen.com. Thank you, sir. Jason? Uh, Thediamondbros.com, superspherevr.com, and uh, pleased to announce... If uh, anyone didn't know that Frame.io secured a $50 million Series C investment. So uh, keep an eye out. And the iPad app just came out, native iPad. So uh, just uh, keep an eye out for really awesome stuff in 2020. 
Yeah, no, congratulations. That's an outstanding, uh, outstanding result. Um, well, that's it for me. I'm obviously on FX Guide. I'm also proud to announce that we're putting on FX Guide, uh, having spoken to visual effects artists around the world, um, also people that are supervisors, um, people that actually uh, develop software, researchers, a whole host of people. The uh, 10 or so sequences that we think are the best sequences of visual effects in the last decade. I'm not gonna discuss them now, have to go on FX Guide to look, though I have asked my fellow uh, VFX show uh, hosts to give their thoughts as we have a whole range of people. And already uh, I've got to say like, some of them are really, I think as soon as you, I would say them, you'd go, oh yeah, that's it. Others have surprised me. Um, but yeah, so check that out. It'll be, by the time you hear this, probably, probably about a day away from being uh, put on FX Guide. It's our end of the decade uh, Christmas present to you. So that's it. Um, other than to say our secrecy is our survival, our survival is our strength. This is our way. This is the way. Thank you. Goodbye. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.